it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, May 27, 2022. I am Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. We air every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We also have a podcast, should you miss any of the broadcast as it airs. And that podcast is on demand. It is free. It is seven days a week. Bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. At Guy Benson Show, our handle on Twitter and Instagram if you'd like to follow us on social media. Many ways, of course, to listen live across our many fantastic affiliates around the country through the Fox News app on the live stream at Fox Nation, through our partners at odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. So that's the recommendation, 3 to 6 Eastern every day, and then the podcast also, a backup plan. I know for some of you it's your top plan, and we appreciate that. I'm political editor at townhall.com. I've got a big piece today talking about solutions and mass shootings. I will address some of it later on today's show. That's at townhall.com on the tip sheet. Also a Fox News contributor. I'll be joining Media Buzz over the weekend on Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time with Howie Kurtz. Hope you will tune in for that. Here on the radio, we'll get to our first guest momentarily. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, will join us later on this hour. Country music superstar John Rich in our middle hour. I just Had a chance to chat with him down in Nashville recently. Really enjoyed that. And I'm excited to have a conversation with John. And then another famous John from the hit show Bar Rescue. He's out with a new book, John Taffer, in our final hour here today. We begin with a Fox News alert. Some new details, shocking details, emerging from a press conference earlier this afternoon in Uvalde, Texas, where authorities finally started, I think, to be more candid about what happened at that school on Tuesday. And a very short while ago, we caught up with our colleague, Bill Malugin, who was at the press conference. We reflected on some of the things that we learned. Listen here. Joining us now from Uvalde, Texas, is Bill Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News. Bill, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. Well, I watched that press conference, as you did as well. It felt like finally we got a little bit closer to perhaps the real truth. Stunner after stunner, at least from my perspective, revealed by the director of DPS. What are your big takeaways from what happened early this afternoon? Geez, where do we start, right? Um, I, I think you have to start with the fact that this all began in the first place because a door was propped open. We, we, we found out that the gunman was able to get into the school because a teacher propped a door open and left it open. Uh, my second biggest takeaway is Texas DPS is strongly criticizing the decision by local police to not breach that room. They said the incident commander, who was the Uvalde School District police chief, decided to treat it as a barricade situation instead of an active shooter situation. And 
Texas DPS, the director, Steve McGraw, said there's no excuse for that. And in hindsight, that was absolutely the wrong decision because the active shooter doctrine they teach is you go straight to that threat and you neutralize it. So what happened instead was there was a 45-minute span where um, those, those officers, there were 19 officers waiting in the hallway while there were people making 911 calls from inside the classroom, teachers, children, asking for help. But the on-scene commander decided they were going to treat it as a barricade. They were not going to breach it. They were going to call a tactical team and wait for backup instead. And, Guy, I think that's going to be a very tough pill for parents to swallow, considering some of those children may have been alive inside of that classroom, maybe bleeding out. And in, in, in a situation like that, seconds and minutes matter. If they could have gotten to the hospital sooner, who knows? Um, but that, as you said, was, was quite a stunner of a press conference. Bottom line, we learned that from the moment police encountered him in the school to the moment he was shot and killed, it was an hour and 15 minutes. And a lot of that was just waiting. You had 19 officers at one point right outside that classroom. And to your point, Bill, they had no idea what was happening behind that door. They had no idea if the threat was neutralized. They had no idea if there were people still alive, children still alive who could be saved but not for much longer. They had no idea if there were children hiding, praying that someone would come and rescue them before they got discovered and killed. This was just a judgment call based on I don't know what by this local police chief who seemingly handed down an order we're not going in. What I'm still trying to figure out is the timeline and the overlay of the 911 calls because it sounded very much to me and we're still trying to piece this together, like there were calls for help, literal 911 calls for help, happening during that time period of the quiet, of the waiting, of the stand down, of the let's wait. And was that information never relayed to the people making the decisions outside that door? Was it relayed and they just decided, oh, well, there are still a lot of questions here in my mind. And you hit the nail on the head because you look at the timeline specifically. Uh, they now say he entered the school at 1133. And for about a two-minute span from 1133 to 1135, he had free reign in that classroom. He fired off hundreds of shots, just started massacring kids and the teachers in there. Well, well hang on, Bill. Just uh, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I just want to I want to back up further than 1133. 1128, five minutes earlier, is when he shows up. And there's a first understanding, at least by some people, that there's a threat. There are people being shot at. He's shooting at the school. That is a crucial five-minute window between the killer arriving and the killer entering the school. Five minutes doesn't sound like a long time, but actually, in a lot of ways, it is. And one of the things that we also learned today is the resource officer, the armed resource officer, was not at the school. So I just want to stop there for a second because— We were told, you were told, you told our audience based on your sources that there was a resource officer who was armed who exchanged fire with this killer before he entered the school and that the officer, in fact, was wounded during that exchange. We now know that that just did not happen at all. And I'm I'm still not understanding how it is possible for something that dramatic of a major detail to be put on the official record for two days and then just sort of retracted like, oh, I guess that got lost in translation. I don't understand that in the first place. 
it, neither do we because they were also incredibly detailed about that engagement. Remember, they Texas DPS told the media that not only was there a shootout between the resource officer and the gunman, but as a result of that, the resource officer was injured and the gunman dropped a bag of ammo that he wasn't right. able to bring into the school. Then we find right. out there was no engagement and the, the school resource officer apparently heard the 911 call and drove over to campus where he was before that they wouldn't say uh drove over to campus and inadvertently missed the shooter drew drew right by, drove right by him because he was kneeling next to a car so he missed him so yeah you're 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 right 1128 crashes the car 1129 he's shooting at people at the funeral home um, 1131 the school resource officer drives by him without without knowing it Two minutes later, 11.33, he's in the school, and for two minutes, he's over 100 rounds in that classroom, massacring everybody. Then at 11.35, after a few minutes in that classroom, the first group of local officers show up, seven of them. In the hallway, they approach the door, they get shot at, a couple of them are injured, and they fall back, and they train their guns on the door, and that is when the crucial decision was made. Instead of breaching, they fall back, they call for backup, and the, the tactical commander on the ground, who we were told today is the Uvalde School District Police Chief, he decided to call for a ballistic shield and a tactical team and backup rather than breaching that door. And at one point, there were, at, we know at 12.06, there were 19 police officers in that hallway. At 12.16, 10 minutes later, there was a 911 call from a teacher saying there were eight to nine students still alive inside. They did not breach with the tactical team until 45 minutes later, 35 minutes later, excuse me, uh, at 12.50 p.m. 12.50 p.m. is when How they is breached that possible? How is that possible? And I know that's a question that needs to go to the people actually involved in making the decisions. I felt a little bad for McCraw a little bit today because he wasn't there. He wasn't making these calls. He was just relaying information that he had gleaned, although it was his DPS associates who had really put a lot of wrong information out there. So part of that's on him. But I think he did a better job today than we've seen so far. At least he seemed genuine and to be telling the truth. You know, he broke down at one point, and I can't really blame him for that. It's highly emotional. But the person who made all of those fateful, horrendously terrible decisions, it would appear, wasn't at the press conference. Where is that person? That and that that is what's jumped out to me too. Is where is the Uvalde School District Police Chief? Where's the Uvalde Police Department? I don't believe they've been a part of any of these these press conferences. And guy, we've seen it a million times. Whether it's a mass shooting or a natural disaster, all these law enforcement agencies love doing press conferences together to show how unified they are and a unified command and how they're working together. Right. This is the, you know, if you notice yesterday before the press conference, the Uvalde Police Department put their own press release out minutes before the press conference. They didn't show up. Then today, regarding one of the wor- the second worst school mass shooting in U.S. history, the school police chief isn't here. The local police department isn't here. It's only Texas DPS and the FBI. So that raises eyebrows to me. Why, why was he not here to answer questions? Why were the local authorities not here to answer questions. Instead, the director of Texas DPS, who was across the state when this happened, is asked questions as if he was the on-the-ground commander. And you're exactly right. Why was that on-the-ground commander making the calls not here to answer questions from the media? We don't know. And is it fair for me to ask this question? For the last 
two and a half days were other people in law enforcement covering for these terrible decisions? Because we got all these stories and all these different timelines and big gaps in the timeline. And it wasn't until finally this afternoon someone actually admitted to the public, yes, there was a very long gap between the officers arriving at the door of the classroom and the suspect, the shooter, being killed. And that was a decision made by this person for these reasons. It took till Friday from a Tuesday shooting for us to get that fact. Why? Your guess is as good as mine. And and you know what? I think part of it was I think you saw those videos circulating online, too, of those angry, pissed-off parents outside of the yep. school saying they, they were about to rush the school, do something, go inside. Now, in fairness to those police officers in that video, they were probably told to just set up a perimeter, keep them back while there were people, you know, cops inside the school. But you could really get a sense of how angry and frustrated those parents were asking those officers, well, do you have a grandchild inside? Give us the armor. We'll go inside. They were they were willing to rush that school. Mm-hmm. And when those when those videos first started coming out, I mean, even I was a little skeptical of, well, we don't know when in the shooting this happened. Maybe the guy was already dead. You know, maybe we don't know. Now it's entirely within the realm of possibility that they showed up as this was all still happening and their little kids were still inside and they weren't seeing any action or activity and they wanted in and they weren't being let in. And so I think I saw some parents got arrested or tasered or something. So yep. um, how, how there was such a discrepancy from the initial information that went out to what we were told today, I have no idea. Well, I guess we'll hopefully find that out in the coming days. But today's press conference was uh, was a stunner. And, and worst of all, think about the parents who are now left with questions wondering, what if, you know, what if yep. they got into that room sooner? What if they tried? What if they tried to breach? What if, you know, what I, we don't know, maybe what if, do we know if there were any children who died at the hospital instead of in the classroom? What if they had an extra 30 minutes of, of hospital care? You know, there's so many hypotheticals and what ifs that these parents could ask now with the information they heard today. Well, it's not just a tragedy and an atrocity. It's also on some level at this point, I think, safe to say a scandal. And the questions that we need answers to, we got some of them today, but a lot of them are outstanding. And I know that you're going to be on the ground, Bill, getting at those answers. And just a dark, depressing, awful week has gotten worse as the days have unfolded. It seems like every update makes things worse, which is obviously just uh, awful for those of us watching this with some sort of distance. People directly affected by it, I, I just can't imagine. Bill Malugin, national correspondent at Fox News, on the ground for us in Uvalde, Texas. Bill, thank you. Thank you, Guy. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. It is the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. The on-scene commander considered a barricaded subject and that there was time and there were no ch- more children at risk. Obviously, ob- obviously, you know, based upon the information we have, there were children in that classroom that were at risk, and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation and not a barricaded subject. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. That is the voice of Stephen McCraw, the DPS director 
that we were talking about, the press conference in that last segment with Bill Malugin, and it was just one jaw-dropper after another. And some of the worst fears that I had yesterday seem to be confirmed in the press conference today. The commander on scene, who is said to be the chief of police of the school district force in Uvalde, made the decision at some point early that the subject was now alone. There were no more children at risk. He was barricaded in the room, so they were going to wait and wait and wait and wait, I guess, until they had every tactical piece of equipment available to them imaginable, and then they would enter the room. So basically an hour ticked by. When we talk about the word barricaded, by the way, there were questions about that at the press conference. The shooter just locked the doors. It's not like they they piled up some desks or chairs by the door. At least to our knowledge, it was just they locked the doors and eventually they unquote barricaded the doors by getting a key from a custodian and opening the door and going in. And shooting the killer, who, by the way, they shot him 15 times. So that was the barricade. The decision that there was no longer any child at risk was wrong. And just for a second, let's just say that it was right, that every single living person in that classroom was dead, except for the killer. They had no way of knowing that. They had no way of knowing if there were still kids bleeding out. If there were kids or adults who could have been saved by much quicker action. Bill made that point in our opening segment. They didn't know if there were kids secretly hiding who were still at risk. And by the way, there were. And they should have known because there were 911 calls throughout this Standoff after the decision has been made by this guy not to do anything. They had 19 cops in that hallway with two locked doors in two classrooms. And there were at 12.03 p.m., a student calls 911, whispers she's in room 112. 12.10, said there are multiple dead. 12.13, called back. 12.16, eight to nine students were still alive. This is what 911 was told. 12.19, student calls from room 111. Three shots heard on the call, another call at 1236, a request for police at 1243, a request for police at 1247, and then finally they go in at 1250. That's according to the New York Times. How is this defensible? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We return to the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Thank you for being here. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, where the podcast is available every day for free. With us now is Andrew McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former federal prosecutor, author of the book Ball of Collusion, among 
other bestsellers. And Andy, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be with you. I want to play for you a clip from today's press conference with the Texas Department of Public Safety. Its director, Steve McCraw, gave us more information on what actually happened on Tuesday, a lot of which was very, very different than what they've been telling us for the last couple of days leading up to this press conference this afternoon, including this about the decision made apparently by the commander on the ground at the local level not to breach the classroom and engage the subject for about an hour. And I'll just play cut 24, then we can talk about it. Listen. Hey, from the, from the benefit of hindsight, where I'm sitting now, then of course it was not the right decision. It was a wrong decision, period. There's no, no excuse for that. But again, I wasn't there, but I'm just telling you, from what we know, we believe there should have been a, an entry at that as soon as you can. Hey, when there's an active shooter, the, the rules change. It's no longer, okay, it's no longer a barricaded stuff. We don't have time. You don't worry about outer perimeters. And by the way, Texas embraces active shooter training, active shooter certification, and that, that, doc, that doctrine requires officers. We don't care what agency you're from. You don't have to have a leader on the scene. Every officer lines up, stacks up, goes and finds where those rounds are being fired at and keeps shooting until the subject is dead, period. And that did not happen until 12.50 or so p.m. on Tuesday. The shooter had entered the school just after 11.30 a.m. And Andy, I know he said in that soundbite it was the wrong decision, period. There's no excuse for that. He did also talk about the benefit of hindsight, but... We are learning, and from that press conference itself, we learned in real time there were multiple 911 calls being made from inside those two classrooms, from students explaining what was happening, begging for police help, and that help did not come until 1250. I I don't know what to even say, Andy, aside from we were told a lot of misinformation for two and a half days. And now that we're getting the real story, I find a lot of these actions totally inexplicable. You have a lifetime of engagement and experience with law enforcement. What are you seeing? What are you thinking? Guy like you, I just find it inexplicable. I was willing, I think we all should be, because of our human experience with these sorts of things, to assume that there's a kind of a fog of war that descends on these kinds of incidents, and you expect that the initial reporting is going to be inaccurate, not because people are lying, but just because people are in panic mode and they also see the same things from different perspectives. So you, there's a certain amount of um, inconsistency uh, and doubt that you expect to get. But the thing I find horrifying about this in, in that particular, I mean, this is a horrifying episode from beginning to end. But usually, as the fog clears, you, you feel like you have a better understanding of what happened and why. And I'm finding, with respect to this, exactly the opposite. The more we mm-hmm. hear, the less I understand what on earth they were thinking. I tend to agree. And... I mean, I am not one who rushes to judgment, especially against law enforcement or the police. But 
when you have a portrait painted of 19 armed officers outside two locked doors, knowing that someone is inside who's killed people or shot people, you don't know if there are people fighting for their lives, you know, bleeding on the floor, or someone playing dead or someone hiding in a closet who could be discovered conceivably at any moment. I mean, even if you're just playing a guessing game and you guess wrong, that is a, a terrible decision. But in this case, there were 911 calls coming in over the course of basically an hour from inside those rooms. So they must have known that people were still at risk. And the de- de- uh, the decision, rather, was made to stand down minute after minute after minute for almost an hour. And I... Even just saying these words out loud and looking at the the timestamps on the 911 calls, I just don't know how this commander who made this decision, who I pointed out earlier with Bill Malugin when we had him on, has not been at any of these press conferences, not the one answering any of the questions. Whoever this person was made these decisions, and a bunch of other officers, I guess, followed those orders. Not to be too dramatic about it, I just don't know how that person can show his face in that town again, let alone continue to lead a police force. Yeah, well, Guy, I think that's all correct. And I I would add to it that, um, you know, there's a certain uh, amount of uh, tactical planning that you have to allow for, uh, and it's understandable that they would want to engage in it. But everything changes once shots are fired. You know, most of the tactical planning that we hear about is you make a plan under circumstances where the shooting hasn't started. Right. In a way that like a hostage situation with a threat. Right. Right. Exactly. So you're hoping that you'll be able to defuse the whole situation without anyone getting hurt. Once shots are fired, that goes out the window. And. You know, your priority, even your priority, even over trying to rescue people who might be an extremist, your priority is to get the shooter. Um, That's just the way it operates, because if it doesn't operate that way, then the the likelihood of more carnage increases. So I, I just there's no explanation for this. And I find a lot of it is apples and oranges in the sense that, uh, you know, to the extent people are talking about their tactical planning, uh, that they're applying that to a situation where it doesn't apply. When when the shooting starts, it doesn't matter anymore. You have to go in. Right. The, all the police go in, whether they're and you what you hope is you rain down police uh, and you get the shooter. I mean, that's that's what the objective is. And you don't need to wait for a boss and you don't need to wait for a SWAT team. And, you know, I mean, this is the way cops are trained when you Although have it sounds shooter, like it was the boss. Trained. It sounds like the boss was there and the one making the call. Yeah, but, you know, guy, we're now two years out from from uh, George Floyd, where one of the big lessons that we're, we were supposed to derive from all that is that when you have a senior officer on the scene who's acting irresponsibly, it is up to the police, the other police and their training is supposed to tell them that uh, you, you can't indulge that. You have to act. Right. You can sort it so out later. 
Right. So the idea that the you know there was one person on the scene, and as you point out, there were as many armed police officers as dead children just feet oh. away from a shooting scene, and we're told that they couldn't act because one bird brain was stopping the whole thing. That's not that's inconceivable. Yeah, I mean it, it is, and I know that this is. A hyper focus on what actually happened in that school that day, what didn't happen. And I mentioned this to Malugin as well. In terms of warning signs, and this we didn't actually get into this earlier in the show, but I talked about it earlier in the week. There's a Washington Post story about the shooter and red flags, you know, cutting himself in the face for fun, going out with a BB gun, shooting at people, the police going to the house multiple times. It seems like that's a, a you know, a recurring theme. With these things, we learned today that there were multiple group chats on Instagram and private messages among at least four people in which these friends or acquaintances of this shooter repeatedly referred to him or referred to the fear or the thought or the suggestion that he might be a school shooter. So there was that to layer on top of it. Then we were told, Andy, as part of the the official story, I know the governor came out and people are saying, oh, Greg Abbott lied. Greg Abbott was given information by the police and he read those pieces of information, including that there was a resource officer who was armed at the school who encountered the shooter before he was able to get into the school and they exchanged fire. The suspect got in. The officer was wounded in the process, but at least – that whole exchange caused the shooter to drop an ammo bag. That was a very specific account given on that multiple times on the official record. And now we're told none of that happened. The officer wasn't there. The officer wasn't even on campus and had to come back to campus when he heard about the 911 calls coming in. I just don't understand how that gets read into the official record for days when it didn't happen. It's a, a fabrication that I guess someone hallucinated or thought they may have seen. That That's very confusing to me. And it also, I think, disrupts a lot of the early takes out there on, oh, look, a good guy with a gun doesn't actually help because they had one and he got outgunned and couldn't save the kids. Well, uh, that I think there would be logical problems with that to begin with, even if that had been the case under these circumstances. But turned out that was false. The good guy with the gun wasn't at the school. So much about this, Andy, is both depressing and enraging. Yeah, Guy. And, you know, the bottom line of it, when you you mentioned that last thing you mentioned about the good guy with a gun, um, the obviously we need to get to the bottom of what happened. And I'm sympathetic to the idea that not only are early reports wrong, what frequently ends up happening is people pick up details and they assume they're correct, and then that gets multiplied. And as a result, there are things that aren't true that get repeated again and again. It's not good, but we have enough experience with that that we we know it happens. But what I would just point out is the bottom line here is all of the hysterical – Uh, statements that are being made about, you know, we have to do something about the guns, we have to do something about the guns. The underlying premise of all that, and I'm not trying to trivialize the problem, but the underlying premise of all that is we don't need to be armed because the police will take care of us. And the police were were next door doing nothing while this was going Mm -hmm. on. 
It's not even one of these situations where you can say, you know, when every second counts, the police are only minutes away. They were there. And still nothing was done. Maddening. Confounding and maddening. And coming up in the next hour, I've written a piece today at townhall.com thinking about mass shootings, school shootings in particular, the cycles of outrage and blame that happen every time this goes down, uh, which is depressingly too often, and the call for conversations and compromise. I, I try to take a good faith stab at that. Like, you know, what would that conversation look like? And so I'll I'll mention some of those points coming up in the next hour, Andy, and I can just hear in your voice that you're as upset as I think many of us are. And I, as I told Bill in our opening segment, I truly cannot imagine the anguish plus anger of family members, loved ones, friends, learning these details. I'm angry. I don't know a single person there on a personal level. I can truly only imagine what is going through their hearts and minds today. Andy McCarthy, before we let you go, I do want to shift to a different subject, which is the Sussman trial. You've been covering it very closely. We've had you on talking about it. This is the uh, the John Durham probe into the Russia matter. I saw a headline that the jury will now be deciding the fate of Michael Sussman. What's the very latest and what is your read on the situation as we await an outcome? Well, this collapsed pretty fast, Guy. Once uh, Sussman decided he changed his mind overnight Wednesday going into Thursday not to testify. So I think we all thought that we were careening towards summations next week. And once he didn't testify, the defense case kind of collapsed. And I don't mean collapse from their perspective in a, in a bad way. I think they think they're winning, so they decided to fold uh, and get the case to the jury. And the case is with the jury. The, as I understand it, at around 1 o'clock Eastern time today, the summations were finished. Uh, the judge had already charged the jury, and they have it. So um, it could be decided as early as today. I know people are saying, you know, we could, could get a verdict next week. I would simply point out to people, this is a one-count false statements case. You know, this is not one of these uh, 25-count indictments that'll take them a while to work through. He either did it or he didn't. So we could get a verdict uh, pretty quickly. I think the last few days of the case did not go well for the government. Okay, did not go well for the prosecutors. You think that by Sussman changing course and saying, I'm not going to testify, the defense believes that they're winning. Do you agree? Yeah. Um, That doesn't mean, you know, he's out of the woods, but I do think the evidence that came in the last few days, which was directed toward what the FBI knew and uh, had some very embarrassing details come out. You don't want in a false statements case, Guy, when you're the government, uh, to have to deal with the fact that the false, the most glaring false statement in the case was made by the FBI in the, in the investigation opening document, where they say that uh, the information they got from Sussman actually came from the Justice Department, which is just flatly not true. And it smacks of the fact that they knew that they were taking politically explosive information from a partisan source, mm. and they were doctoring their paperwork in order to cover that up. That's not a good place to be in. It's not Durham's fault, and it doesn't mean that Sussman didn't lie, but it's just, you know, it's tough for the jury, I think. 
seems like there's a lot of line going on and more questions about will there ever be accountability for any of this, which I know is frustrating to a whole lot of people. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor, Fox News contributor, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show today. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Have a great holiday weekend. You too. And we will be right back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, I was just reading again the transcript from the press conference earlier where they walked through the 911 calls. I mean, this is the thing that I cannot get over. They knew there were people in harm's way, children, through that whole long period of doing nothing. They knew. You could say they could have come to that conclusion or should have come to that conclusion even without the 911 calls repeatedly over the course of that hour out of those two classrooms. They should not have assumed, oh, I guess everyone must be dead or gone. It's just him. He's barricaded. Let's just wait and go into like a a hostage negotiation or something. They had no idea if someone could have been saved if they were sent to the hospital in time. They had I would say they had no idea that there weren't kids still in there hiding, but it's worse than that. They did know or they should have known just a complete and total breakdown, absolute incompetence. Basically, every adult in charge failed those kids. Failed them. And I think we are just starting to get a sense of how widespread the failures were. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show. It's Friday. Thank you for tuning in. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday. Glad you are here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free on demand every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Catch me on Media Buzz Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Fox News Channel with Howie Kurtz. I'll be on there. Fox News Alert. The Dow closes up significantly again today, 575 points in the green, ending the week at 33,212. I want to take a step back from the specifics of Uvalde and the shooting at that elementary school on Tuesday. It is depressing. It is infuriating the more that we learn, and I think we've talked a lot about that yesterday and now already today. We are not averting our eyes from the facts there. I do think it's also important to maybe raise our gaze to the broader issue at hand. Because, as I've said, we have a mass shooting problem in this country that is not exclusive to America, but unique to America in terms of 
the scope of the problem and the frequency of these incidents. And when they happen, especially at a school, but also at a business, a shopping center, a supermarket, we have a cycle that begins that is distressingly, demoralizingly familiar. It's almost as if everyone in politics and in the media have pre-written scripts that they've memorized. And we don't even wait a few hours anymore. It's minutes. People rush to their battle stations and start repeating the lines that they have said many times before. And it feels like nothing really changes except people do get really mad at each other. We're really good at getting really mad at each other after something horrific happens. You get the calls for gun control, then the objections to gun control, and some of those objections are correct and important. Then some people start talking about thoughts and prayers, and other people say you can stuff your thoughts and prayers, rejecting and ridiculing even the concept of prayer, which then offends a bunch of other people. And then you have people like me who go on television, grim, go on radio, and somberly intone that we need to have real conversations. And a lot of people say, okay, yeah, what does that mean? Then you hear the words mental health thrown around. Yes, obviously that's a very important component of a lot of this. You get people denigrating each other, impugning each other's motives. They're really bad actors on both sides of this debate who then are so egregious in their behavior that it sort of crowds out everything else. And after a while, the attention to the atrocity of the given moment peters out for most people, not for the people who have been affected by it, but for the rest of us. And we kind of turn our attention to the next giant fight that we're going to have over something else. And then once it happens again, a mass shooting happens again, and it always does, there's always a next time. We pick up right where we left off with the identical cycle. The details, the specifics of the incidents themselves change. The cycle feels almost exactly the same every time. And it accomplishes basically nothing. Right? What I just described to you should sound familiar, right? Now, I think it would be helpful if we could start any discussion or conversation about solutions or what have you, with the acknowledgement that almost every single human being in this country, right, left, center, apathetic, whatever you are, are horrified by mass shootings. No one supports it. No one wants it. No one likes it. Just an affirmation of each other's basic humanity and empathy. Maybe we could start there, but it seems like that's not what we do. 
In fact, a lot of the anger is played out in dehumanizing blood on your hands, complicity, all that, that, that game. And the people who were accused of being on the side of child murder, for example, are maybe not in a, and they're not like overwhelmed by a spirit of conciliation and constructive solution seeking when their prayers have been denigrated and they've been said, they've been told that they're killing children. It's so counterproductive. So we have a national debate that feels stuck on this issue. Ala Pundit, who's a writer, a pen name that he uses at hotair.com, I read him a lot. He wrote this this week, quote, This country is not only incapable of solving its problems, but incapable of even seriously attempting to do so anymore. Now, that might be a little too cynical, but there's an uncomfortable amount of truth to that. So I'm one of those people who goes on the air, whether it's here or on Special Report or other places that I've been, and I try to be responsible in what I say, and a lot of it's about conversations and compromise. I am suspicious of do-something-ism. Like, oh, something horrible has happened. We must do something in an emotional state. That does not necessarily lead to sound policy decisions. It makes sense to be emotional when a bunch of kids are murdered in cold blood. You should be emotional. Translating that into public policy is a different question. Then there's do-nothingism, which is explicit in some cases, but de facto in others, where people just throw up their hands. Well, there's really nothing that can be done. Because your solutions I don't like and my solutions you don't like. And really, if you look at these solutions, A, B, and C, they wouldn't really perfectly prevent. And so you just sort of wait. You wait it out. You sort of wait out the clock. And then on a de facto basis, you've got do-nothingism. What should we do? What is the answer? The response that I have to give out of transparency and honesty, is I don't know. I don't have good answers to this. Generally not something that people in this line of work enjoy saying. You're always supposed to know something and have a take. I don't know. I also do not have any real expertise or insights when it comes to this stuff, beyond just being a citizen who pays attention. I've been open about my own biases, my own priors. I'm a conservative. I'm pro-Second Amendment. I'm not a guns person. I've never fired a gun, let alone owned one. I've thought about changing that because of some threats and that sort of thing for self-defense. But at least for now, I've never even shot a gun. But I support the Second Amendment. I'm very suspicious and skeptical of people who want to undermine gun rights. I'm also not as doctrinaire or absolutist as some I would say many other conservatives are. I do feel like as the type of person who shows up on your TV screen saying, oh, we have to figure something out here. We have to have real conversations. I mean, that's very easy to say, and it might sound like, oh, well, you know, what a wise thing to say. But it actually means nothing if you're not going to do some of that work yourself. Like, oh, we have to have real conversations, and it's like, okay, 
we'll let someone else do that. So for that reason, I feel an obligation to at least give you some of the things that I would be open to considering or doing in this realm, which is not to say that this is all perfect. Nothing's perfect. If there was something perfect or really good, we would have done it already. That was effective and constitutional, and there is a consensus around it. If that thing happened, we can't even agree on what is constitutional, on what is effective. This is obviously an an intractable, ongoing problem. And it's not an easy one. And people who kind of act like, oh, if you just do the thing that I'm saying, all these people wouldn't be dead. And if you disagree, that's on you. I really find that deeply immature and unhelpful. But rather than saying, hey, let's do something, but not just for the sake of doing something, and let's be thoughtful about it and have meaningful conversations, okay, I need to at least contribute to that myself. That is what I feel part of my responsibility is in this job. So when we come back, I'll just walk through, and I wrote this at length, a long piece at townhall.com today. It's the only piece that I wrote today. The headline is on mass shootings, cycles of blame and solutions. And I want to just summarize at least some of the things, some of the conversations I'm willing to have. I'm not endorsing any specific bill at this point. There will be people who agree with me and disagree with me and say, oh, he's He's giving up way too, too, way too much to the left. He's caving way too much to the left. And other people saying, oh, this is just, you know, marginal stuff that doesn't really get to the real thing, which is gun control. I understand that I'm probably not going to satisfy a lot of people with some of these things. But I at least have to try with something. So I will make that attempt in good faith when we come back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson, and I wrote today at townhall.com a piece called On Mass Shootings, Cycles of Blame, and Solutions. And I feel like it's my obligation to at least put some things out there that I'm open to when it comes to these types of discussions that I keep saying need to happen. You can agree, you can disagree. If you want some more meat on the bones, you should go to townhall.com and read my piece. I'm just going to run through half a dozen points that I make. Number one, in terms of what we should consider or at least discuss seriously, carefully well-crafted red flag laws. Again, none of these are foolproof because the Buffalo shooter should have been red flagged and it didn't prevent him from getting his guns. But having red flag laws could at least offer a layer of defense, basically, against dangerous people getting their hands on weapons. Now, there need to be protections for due process and civil liberties. This could be abused, and you have to consider that when you're writing the laws. David French has written about this, I think, very well at the Dispatch and elsewhere. I think that is something that we ought to consider. Because in almost all of these cases, with mass shootings of strangers, it's a angry, disillusioned young man with a broken home and mental health issues. 
that combination of things. And there are warning signs along the way. Number two is strengthen defenses at schools. I'm not talking about turning everything into a fortress. I am sort of mystified by people who don't understand, who pretend at least to not understand the concept of a single egress and ingress point for visitors to schools. It's like people are making fun of Ted Cruz like he's talking about boarding up every other exit except for one. Like, well, what fire hazard? How could the... That's that's not at all what Cruz and others are talking about. This is, in fact, a best practice just for security at a school where if you're a visitor, you enter one designated door. And I get it. It's not perfect. It's not the solution to fix everything, but it is a best practice. Another one is armed security. We had two days of people saying, "Ah, oh, see, it doesn't work because they had armed security and it didn't stop the situation in Texas. Now we know that the armed security guy wasn't there. And I talked yesterday on the show about a few examples that we've covered in recent years of security officers trained and armed thwarting or cutting short school shootings. It is not a perfect solution like the rest of them, but it is something. Would you rather have someone armed to stop someone bad with a gun or no one armed to stop someone bad with a gun. To me, I I truly do not understand people who want to ridicule or mock or poo-poo the idea of armed security being helpful. I, I don't think we question that in almost any other circumstances. Number three, stop the drills. I rarely totally agree with Chris Hayes from MSNBC, but he's been beating this drum for a while, and he said it again this week. He said, I'm more certain of this than I ever have been. Stop lockdown drills in schools immediately. It does nothing to protect kids. All it does is traumatize them. And in the worst case, plant the idea for some of them. I think that's important. Going through an active shooter drill does not help, but I think it does magnify in a distorted way the threat in the minds of kids, which is anxiety-inducing and traumatizing. There are far too many school shootings. The vast majority of the school shootings are in a parking lot or at a sporting event or one person shooting one other reason or gang-related. It's not one of these mowing people down, total strangers in a mass, a mass casualty event which is the worst kind of school shooting. Those school shootings have happened 13 times in the last 60 years, which is not to say any one of those doesn't matter or they're not a problem, but 13 over 16 years does not justify active shooter drills for students. Number four, this is for the media, those of us in the media, we try to practice this here, don't glorify perpetrators. If you want to report their name and a few things about them, put their photo up once, journalistically, fine. But saying the names over and over again on the air, showing the images, there's data that shows that this inspires copycats and other sick people. Number five, I'm open to discussing whether or not the age for rifles, the purchase age should be 21 like the drinking age. 
which it is for handguns in Texas, but not for rifles as opposed to 18. I know that there are counterpoints, potential constitutional questions there. It's something I'm willing to discuss, as is background checks and expanding them just a little bit. I think this is usually a red herring where background checks usually play no factor, actually, loopholes or anything like that in these mass shootings. But I'm willing to at least discuss that as well. And you can read with more specificity these points at townhall.com. But that's at least a starting point from my perspective. And I feel like I owe it to you. So there it is. It's The Guy Benson Show. We continue here on The Guy Benson Show. And we have some breaking news and a Fox News alert. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has now begun in Uvalde, Texas, a press conference on the school shooting, and we're going to go to that live right now. To ensure that every cost of every family concerning anything about the funeral services is going to be taken care of. We appreciate that anonymous donor uh, for his generosity, and we will ensure that those resources get into the right hands to make sure that no family who is suffering from incalculable heartbreak at this time will have to worry about a single cost with regard to anything concerning this travesty. Now, in addition to that, there are all kinds of needs as well as all kinds of services. One of the needs is need for mental health care. And we have an abundance of mental health care services that we are going to be able to provide. That includes state and private providers that will be providing mental health assistance to anyone in the community who needs it. And when I say anyone, that means the totality of anybody who lives in this community. We believe that you would benefit from mental health care services. Those mental health care services are free. We just want you to ask for them. The way that you can ask for them whether it be today, tomorrow, next month, or next year, is this number, 888-690-0799. Mental health care can be reached by calling 888-690-0799. That helpline will be answered 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whenever you need it. In addition to that, I am uh, announcing the establishment of the One Star Foundation Fund uh, to assist uh, with ongoing challenges that would be faced by the victims of this crime. To to put this into perspective, to help you understand how this works, uh, we opened up a fund like this in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey uh, to assist all of the thousands of victims of Hurricane Harvey uh, and received millions of dollars in support that went to those who face challenges because of Hurricane Harvey. The exact same thing applies here. Right here uh, is the address. It's onestarfoundation.org. Onestarfoundation.org. To be more precise, if you go to onestarfoundation.org slash Uvalde, you make a contribution at that site that is already a pre-registered 501c3 organization, provided a donation to that site. There is no overhead cost. 100% of the money that you donate is going to be going directly to victims 
of this horrible crime to help them uh, with their lives. One of the pre-designated donation sites that would be that it would be going to is the Rob School Memorial Fund. So again, uh, the OneStarFoundation.org.uvalde. Well, you can do your part to help out the people in this community that are suffering in incalculable ways. In addition to that, we have set up a central headquarter for victim assistance services at the Family Assistance Center located at the Uvalde County Fairplex. As we'll be discussed probably here momentarily, uh, there may be a relocation of that site and we will keep everybody fully informed about where the re relocation site will be. Every family impacted by the shooting has been assigned an advocate to help them with their needs. Among other things, there will be uh, airfare, for example, whether it be through American Airlines, United Airlines, or JetBlue Airlines that will provide victims' families with flights free of charge so that they can get here and be with their family members. The Family Assistance Center will cover the travel and lodging costs of families who've been, uh, who have uh, lost loved ones. Health care costs of families impacted by this tragedy will also be covered uh, by Texas insurance companies and donations from private citizens. Uh, the Texas Housing and Community Affairs, for example, uh, they have a, a fund to pay for needed supplies right now, whether it be food or gas or other essential needs. And that money can, is available right now as we speak. Also at the Family Assistance Center, the Health and Human Services Commission, who you'll be hearing from more here in a second, they will assist families in finding health and human benefit programs. Staff from the Texas Department of Insurance, the uh, Teachers Retirement System, the uh, Employees Retirement System will provide access to benefits, including workers' compensation. Staff from the Texas Workforce Commission uh, are available to get families child care and unemployment benefits. And state staff uh, are available to provide assistance to business owners impacted by this tragedy. Healing the broken hearts is going to take a long time. But through the generosity of our fellow Texans and the good works of neighbors helping neighbors, we can begin to stitch back together the fabric of Uvalde. Helping us to do that is the leader of Uvalde himself, uh, and that is the mayor of Uvalde, who I would like to ask to speak at this time. Governor, I'd like to thank you for bringing all these state agencies here and the services you've offered our community, our citizens, because these families are going to need this help, not just today, but in the long term, as you mentioned. So for that, Governor, I, I appreciate it. And I, I, you know, all I can say is I've seen you these last two days and the compassion and, and that you felt along with these families and that, I, I just I really admire it. I thank you. And, and like I said, and we appreciate everybody from all over the world and the country that has sent messages of encouragement and so forth. I mean, our hearts are broken here in Uvalde. It's a very, I mean, you know, nobody ever wants to have to go through this, especially as a mayor. I never thought this was something I would have to go through. My heart's broken for these families. But the one good thing about our community is Uvalde is a strong community. I think if some of you reporters have been here a while enough, you'll see that, that there's a lot of unity in our community and it will take some time, but we will get over this, and Uvalde will come back stronger and better than ever. So God bless you, and thank you. 
Thank you very much. And someone who has been actively engaged in, in helping uh, the victims of crime already uh, and will remain engaged all the way through uh, is the District Attorney, Christina Mitchell. Thank you, Governor, for being here. And we want to thank everybody that's reached out to us in Uvalde from across the state, from across the country, and across the world. We greatly appreciate all the support and kind words and prayers and assistance that has been sent to us. And like the mayor said, here in Uvalde County, we are down-to-earth people, we are salt-of-the-earth people, and we are a family. And like a family, we're going to get through this together with each other and for each other. And we're asking everybody across the world to continue to support us. So I, the district attorney, along with the FBI victims assistance people, the DPS victim assistance people, the attorney general's office, we have set up a family assistance center at the Uvalde County Fairplex here in Uvalde. And at that center, it's a one-stop shop for all the victims. Uh, and we say victims, we mean everybody that was associated with Robb Elementary School. And when you come there, you're going to meet with a counselor, you're going to meet with all the services that the state has to offer, funeral services, Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, the Mexican Consulate is there, the Red Cross is there, and we're there to provide all the services any family may need. And if you need something that's not there, then let me know and we will find it for you. And that's going to be open and continue until June the 1st. We are open from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. There's also food there and a play center for children. Uh, and please come and see us. Any victims, anybody that needs help, please come there. It's a resource for, for everybody. There's also a victim services center at the Civic Center that's run by the school district. And that's for anybody affected in the school district. And they have that services there. So we thank everybody. We appreciate your support. And please keep our victims in your prayers, these families of the deceased children and school teachers, and keep us, uh, keep us strong. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to call up uh, seven leaders of seven, seven different state agencies uh, to give you a very brief explanation uh, of what their particular agency does. There are more than seven that are involved in this process, uh, but we're calling up these seven. First is the Health and Human Services Commissioner, Cecily Young. Good afternoon. I'm Cecily Young, and I'm the Executive Commissioner at the Health and Human Services Commission. We do Medicaid, CHIP, and... And you are listening live to this press conference from Uvalde, Texas, led by the governor there, Greg Abbott, in response to this school shooting. Let's listen in still. ...available um, on an ongoing basis once we move into the next phase of this. Additionally, as the governor mentioned, we have a, an 888 number... It's uh, for mental health services, it's 888-690-0799. This is um, run by Hill Country um, Local Mental Health Authority. So it is local. It is a 24-hour, seven days a week call center um, that is able to connect people with services, with counseling, medication, um, tele, tele um, counseling services, and telepsychiatry services. And they will be able to ensure that anyone in the community that calls in will be connected to other available mental health services. So it is a way to triage, again, to try to make it as easy as possible for the members of the community. Thank you. Next is the Texas Department of Insurance Commissioner, Cassie Brown. 
Good afternoon. I'm Cassie Brown. I serve as the Commissioner of Insurance for the Texas Department of Insurance. TDI is you have been listening live to this Uvalde, Texas press conference helmed by the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott. We're going to keep monitoring this press conference. You heard some of those updates there. This is much more about support for the families and for the community than the law enforcement side, which was the press conference we talked about throughout the show already. But we will monitor what's happening in case there's any more news coming out of that. I know that we had teased that John Rich, the country music superstar, was going to be here Because of this breaking news, we have rescheduled with John. We will get him back on the show. Just want to mention that. We will take a break. We will get back to our program. When we return, you're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, I want to bring you an update to a story that we've followed on and off for a while out of Florida. We know that so many of the attacks against Governor Ron DeSantis from the left, from the Democratic Party, especially from the news media, who are very much aligned with the aforementioned groups, have been based on dubious or provably false premises. And we spent a lot of time going through those and debunking them because I think, and I've said this many times, that they view him as a threat politically And they've been trying to take him out. And it doesn't matter whether it's true or not what they're saying. They have jumped on everything like it's a giant problem or a huge scandal or they finally got him now. And it has backfired enormously on them and has redounded substantially to his benefit because he's smart about fighting. And in many cases, they've been very stupid about the way they've come after him. One of the elements of that broader battle in that state is the allegations from a woman called Rebecca Jones, who has been promoted by all sorts of blue checkmark people, media organizations, and both Democrats running for governor who want to take on DeSantis in the fall. Charlie Crist, who's a sitting congressman who's been in every possible party imaginable, who has taken Every position on every issue you can think of, like just a cynical, shape-shifting chameleon with no core beliefs at all, apparently. That's Charlie Crist. And then Nikki Freed, who is the agriculture commissioner, the only statewide elected Democrat left in Florida, who seems to do very little of her actual job and instead spends much of her time on Twitter feeding a steady diet to left-wing Twitter of what they want to see. So they had both promoted the wild conspiracy theories from Rebecca Jones, who is a disturbed, accused criminal who was alleging that she was coerced into changing the COVID data down in Florida to make it seem like things were better than they were. She was lying, in other words, about being told to do the type of thing that actually happened in New York under Governor Cuomo. So you had a lot of people paying attention to Florida about cooking the books and lying about statistics. It was all untrue, while the people doing a lot of that lying were the same people glorifying and lionizing Governor Cuomo as the fantastic anti-Trump out there during the pandemic. 
And I know many of you know all of this already. I think it's just worth recapping that, not letting them forget about it, not letting ourselves forget about it. Well, there was an independent investigation. I mean, Rebecca Jones had been totally discredited multiple times over from multiple sources. And Charles Cook at National Review has really done a lot of good work on this. He took her down in a pretty comprehensive way in a piece months ago. We had him on the show talking about it. And part of the message was shame on anyone who believed this person, who was on her face not credible. Like you could just, with a tiny bit of critical thinking, come to the conclusion, at least let's be skeptical. But because she was telling people exactly what they wanted to hear, people rushed out to say, look at this brave whistleblower. And I think it is worth demanding accountability of people who went along with this transparent nonsense. But now we have yet another piece of evidence discrediting Rebecca Jones. Reading from NRO, a former dashboard manager at the Florida Department of Health made, quote, unsubstantiated claims that Governor Ron DeSantis and his administration fired her because she refused to obey her superior's instructions to fudge the state's COVID-19 data, a new investigation has found. The extensive report from the Health Department's Office of Inspector General found, quote, insufficient evidence that Rebecca Jones was ordered to falsify, alter, or misrepresent COVID positivity rates on the state COVID-19 data and surveillance dashboard that she helped to build. In December 2020, Jones alleged that the former Florida Deputy Secretary of Health, who was a reputable chronic disease epidemiologist, pressured her to delete cases and deaths to sugarcoat the state's handling of the COVID crisis. The new report addressed Jones's accusations, as well as accusations against two other state officials, and found those accused, quote, exonerated. As for Rebecca Jones, where is she now? Well, she currently awaits trial on a felony charge of illegally accessing government systems and downloading private personnel data, She also has a misdemeanor stalking charge stemming from a different incident in which she was fired from Florida State University for having sex with a student in her class. A real class act, this woman. And some of the most prominent Democrats and media figures in the state and in the country bought into what she was saying, which was a bunch of lies, as the inspector general has yet again now confirmed. Oh, and by the way, she's now running for Congress as a Democrat. The grift continues, as does The Guy Benson Show right after this. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the final hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Glad to have you here. Thank you for listening. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, also around the clock, on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, that includes Bonus Benson. 
on the weekends. At Guy Benson Show is our Twitter handle and our Instagram handle, so please give us a follow. And this happy hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is fantastic. It will be featured at our barbecue tomorrow at the house. We have a lot of long drink ready for our guests. You should try it out if you haven't already. They are expanding all over the country, upwards of 40 states now. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. And that's a lot more places now. You can also order online. Well, joining us now is John Taffer, host and executive producer of Bar Rescue on Paramount. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, has a new book out now called The Power of Conflict. Speak your mind and get the results you want. John, good to have you back on the show. Uh, Great to be back, Guy. So I want to start with this question because I'm sure you've gotten it or maybe people are too scared to ask you the question, but some people have at least thought it. They're like, hang on. This guy wrote a book about how to speak your mind and get results. I know the title is The Power of Conflict, but isn't this the guy who's on TV screaming at people about how terrible their bars and restaurants are? Should he be giving advice on effective communication? What's your response to that? Obviously, the premise of the book is you feel like you can, even in a harsh way, be effective and get things done, right? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, uh, the answer is Bar Rescue is shot in four days, Guy, and it's 60 days of work compressed into four days. So there's a clock ticking in my head every second. I don't have time to win people over. I don't have time for politics. <laughs> Everything that happens in Bar Rescue is completely real, but the time is so compressed it creates this tension and this unreal environment that we do it in. About 120 episodes in, I'm now at about 240, I got really upset at a, at a woman who owned a bar in Detroit, Michigan. And I got back to my hotel that night, and I realized I wasn't upset. I actually used conflict as a tool to open her mind and communicate with her. And even though I was acting emotional, I wasn't. And then I started realizing, wow, in the next episodes, I use conflict either causing it between other people or between myself and them as a tool. Then I went further and I said, okay, let's get out of the compressed bar rescue environment. What has happened with conflict in our country? And I know you agree with me on this guy. The discourse in America has become so disrespectful that if you thought I was going to steal your dignity from you and disgrace you, why would you sit at the table with me and negotiate anything? Mm-hmm. But if you thought I was going to treat you with dignity and respect, then I got a great chance of getting you to sit at the table and talk with me. So this book is about dignified, respectful, purposeful, constructive conflict. And we talk about certain conflicts are worth having. Certain conflicts are not worth having based on topic. Certain people are worth engaging with, brothers, sisters, spouses, family members, bosses, people you love and care about. Other people are not worthy of engaging with. So if somebody is boisterous, guy, and loud, let's engage with them in a public environment where it keeps them controlled. If somebody is shy, let's meet with them in a private environment. So there's a way to communicate with people that causes them to open up. And again, I'm giving you a long discourse guy but i got a logic here let's say you said the sky was blue and i say the sky is green 
and we sit down to engage, and the first thing I do is I look at you and say, Guy, tell me why you feel the way you do. And you start talking about it, and I put my hand on my chin, and I lean in, and I'm genuinely interested in what you say. And then I say, end, and really, end, and really, and I get you to talk more, and now you're interested in what I'm saying, and we're exchanging ideas, and we're talking to each other, we're both engaged. Let's say at the end of that conversation, you still think the sky is blue, and I still think it's green. You know what? We both won, Guy. We understand each other more. We've developed a better relationship together. You know, 50% of America thinks one thing, 50% of America thinks another. I'm being very broad stroke here. Neither side is crazy if you take the extremes out of the mix. Well, although so, you, might be, you might be crazy if you think the sky's green, though, right? Because some things are, there's just a right answer. Absolutely. But I'm using a, a silly illustrative example, sure, 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 sure. of course. But the point is, if I still maintain my position and you still maintain yours, boy, we've opened up new levels of communication. We've learned how to respect each other. I understand you more. You understand me more. Even though we still disagree, our lives are better with each other because of it. That's the point. How? So in meaningful conflict, we both win, even if we still disagree. How do you make the judgment call? Because obviously most people know you through your public persona and your show where you raise your voice a lot and there's, you know, F-bombs being bleeped out uh, from time to time, let's say. How can you make a decision with strangers about whether or not those tactics are effective for them? Because I know there are some people out there who respond actually well to someone getting in their face, maybe raising their voice, making themselves crystal clear, and then they feel like, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to rise to the occasion. Something in that exchange stirs in them a desire and a focus to be better. But there are other people who, when they get that kind of treatment, even if you're absolutely right and your point is precisely correct and they need to do exactly what you're shouting at them to do, they shut down. They, they can't process things. They go into a defensive shell. They're like catatonic. They, they can't really move forward after that. As you deal with, in these cases, kind of strangers, you've met them a few times, you're trying to help them improve their business. How do you make the calls about the best way to get through to someone? Because to your point, there's a lot of nuance here. Everyone's different. But sometimes you don't have all that time to really feel that out in a certain person. Well, I have to, though, and I have to do it in a short period of time because you're absolutely correct. If I cause them to shut down, I'm not going to be able to help them anymore. If the conflict gets too irate and emotional, then logic doesn't prevail anymore and I can't help them anymore. So I have to go at it in a very measured way. I've gotten good at it after you know doing this for so many years. Some people, and, and you speak to the moments when I scream and yell in the show, even throw food at somebody on occasion. I've been known to do yeah. that. But uh -huh. there's also moments when my hand is on people's shoulder. We were having very very, you know, close, intimate conversations and supportive conversations. So both is happening. Uh, the point is, you have to read the individual you're with, and we talk about that in the book. Who is the person you're going to engage with? What is their personality style? Uh, uh, how, do you, how do you approach them? Uh, uh, everybody, there is one commonality. Everybody likes it when you listen to them. Everybody likes it when what you say uh, appears important to you. Uh, so those commonalities exist. But then the approach gets different. Also, you know, based upon that personality, do you take them to a public place? You also don't expect to win in one time if you're trying to make a point. Guy, if it's with your brother or your sister or your partner or whomever it is, you know, sometimes these are lengthy discussions, and they happen over months. But you talk about it, and you don't hide it. And, you know, you get along with your brother at Thanksgiving dinner because you're, you're being honest 
honest and you understand each other more. You still disagree, but it's okay. It's a respectful disagreement now. And I, Guy, I so much want to see respectful discourse come back in, in our political environment, and I strongly believe that if it doesn't, uh, we're not going to achieve compromise. We're not going to achieve success at a federal level. It just gets too difficult to achieve when nobody will sit down in the same room well, together. Well, and, and this is a point that— Respect it. That, that's what happens. Yeah, I've been making this point for years, even back to when I co-authored my book, End of Discussion. If we can't even talk about solving the problems in a somewhat quasi-constructive way, we're not going to solve the problems, right? We can't even get to the step of the solving if we can't achieve the step of talking about the solving in a way that is you know, productive or even close to it. You mentioned something earlier, and this goes, I think, to a universal truth and a cliche, pick your battles, right? There are some conflicts— worth having. There are some that are not. And making that decision, it seems like maybe as important as anything else that you're talking about in this book or just in this general realm. What is your quick and dirty guide, basically, to making those judgment calls between is this worth it or is it not even worth it? Let it go. What's the line there? Well, is the person who, who you're talking about meaningful to you? You know, the premise of the book guy that I really started with is no matter who you are, uh, your, your opinion matters. And no matter who you are, you should stick up for the things that matter to you. Or if you don't, in today's society, they just might disappear. So I want people to have the confidence to engage in a constructive way, not a destructive way. That's a lot of the purpose of this. So is the topic worthwhile? Is this something that you're passionate about, that you care about, that you want to engage in? Do I care what this person thinks? Does it matter to me? Now, I love the Internet stuff, guy. Faceless people insulting me, insulting you, and whatever your political views are, you get insulted today. They're faceless. I would never engage with someone who's faceless. And in as much, and I don't want to talk about policy, but, you know, I think President Trump engaged in many conflicts that made no sense. NASCAR. I mean, silly things like that, guy, that, that create this wasted environment of conflict. So it should be chosen wisely. And, and the people that we engage with should be people that mean something to us. John Taffer, I do want to ask you about the restaurant industry. We spoke a while back on this show, really during the pandemic, where a lot of restaurants could not operate, literally, they were not allowed to. And then they were starting to come out of that slowly but surely. As you talk to restaurateurs, managers, line cooks, everyone, up and down the industry, bars and restaurants, where are things now in your mind? And how much is now inflation hammering these businesses? Well, inflation is hammering us heavily. The labor issue is hammering us heavily. What's interesting, Guy, is most restaurant companies are between 15 and 25% ahead in sales from pre-COVID levels. So it's interesting. You know, we talked a while back, are people going to come back? Is there pent-up demand? How quickly will they come back? Well, they came back, and they came back in big numbers. Now we don't have the staff to serve them properly, and the cost is is, uh, – insurmountable in some cases. You know, the inside scoop, guys, that the restaurant industry runs about a 30% food cost. So we have to take the cost of food and mark it up three times just to break even because we have labor and insurance and rent and all the other expenses. So I'm just speaking about just food at 30%. So if food meat prices go up 14%, well, then we have to raise it three times 14%. Right to, to get the same cost to price ratio out of it and maintain our profit margins. We can't do that. 
We can't start selling cheeseburgers for $28, $34. Chicken wings can almost cost almost $2 now. So we can't change our prices every day, and we can't charge obscene numbers, even though we're being charged obscene numbers for the food. So it's very scary, guy. Also, Specs are changing. If you got a certain chicken breast, so your bun is designed for that breast, your plate is, your cooking training, all that, now that breast isn't available anymore. So now you're getting a thinner breast. So now it's overcooking. It doesn't fit in the bun. I mean, these little changes in a restaurant industry of inconsistent products, unavailable products, are a nightmare. Let me ask you last question, John. You're a trend spotter. You live and breathe this whole industry. You see what's coming, what's going within that world. Are there trends in the bar and restaurant hospitality industry that you think are intriguing and people should maybe pay attention to? What do you see coming down the line here? Maybe short term, maybe medium term. It's interesting. A number of my friends run the large casino companies in Las Vegas, and when they didn't get the employees, they found solutions to operate without those employees. And the big word to me is robotics. The National Restaurant Association show happened last week in Chicago. Two years ago, there were no robotic booths. Today, there's got to be 150 robotic booths at the convention. Robotic cooking, robotic pizza makers, robotic servers, robotic butlers, guy, that bring your room service up to your room, knock on your door, you lift his hat off, and your dinner's in it. Says thank you, and you watch him head back down the hall, and he gets in the elevator and rides with guests. So we're seeing a real trend to solve the labor issue in the industry, but that's costly, guy. That's big capital expense. So I'm pushing right now, and, and I've met with a number of senators. We need to take a look at providing a, a faster, more appealing depreciation schedule for restaurants that are investing in new technologies. And that will help the industry get over this bump of investing into these robotic technologies. Guy, without the people and the ability to produce product, the additional traffic flow doesn't equate to revenues for us. So we have to solve these problems. John Taffer is host and executive producer of the hit show Bar Rescue on Paramount. His new book now out is The Power of Conflict. Speak your mind and get the results you want. John, appreciate the conversation. Let's do it again. My pleasure, Guy. And Taffer's Tavern is opening in D.C. in a few weeks. I promised you an invite. So you, you did. get that, my friend. Oh, I can't wait. Hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you and, and taste your food and, and hang out. That would be really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to have a sandwich together. Be well, Guy. Sounds great. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back on the happy hour. It is the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It is the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. Welcome back. It's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And this comes unsurprisingly out of California and even more unsurprisingly out of the San Francisco Bay Area. The San Francisco Unified School District has now announced that the word chief will no longer be used in reference to job titles. So chief enforcement officer, chief counselor, whatever that would be, because it's insensitive, they've decided, to Native Americans. That's the connotation, apparently. They think chief, they think Native Americans, they think that's a problem, that's problematic, so let's get rid of the word in titles. Which is extremely stupid, even if it were true, even if that were the origin of the word. But it's not. Many people have pointed out on social media, that there are English roots to this word going back centuries. They have nothing to do whatsoever 
with Native Americans. In fact, it was an English word assigned to that position by non-Native Americans. Then there's also a root in the word that's French that goes back to the word chef, like in a restaurant. I wonder if we're going to have to ban the word chef because that is similar to chief and inspired the word chief, which is insensitive because Native Americans or something. It's like they just sit around dreaming up things that someone might be offended by to ban. It is so exhausting. It reminds me, actually, of how they got rid of master bedroom, master bathroom in real estate. Like, overnight, it was determined, oh, well, one context in which the word master was used was slavery. Forget all the other meanings of the word, including the verb form of that word. That didn't matter anymore. Master equaled slavery equals racism equals can't say it. So no longer was that terminology permitted on, for example, HGTV. It just disappeared. Master bed, master bath was replaced by main bed, main bath. And I guarantee you there's a way to find a problem with the word main. We can dig around and find some jerry-rigged etymological reason to say, nope, that is also a problem. Let's get rid of that. I'm pretty sure they just had, what, three school board members recalled by the people of San Francisco because they were so busy trying to rename schools in this ridiculous woke project as opposed to even having the schools operational during COVID. I guess the lesson has not been learned yet because this is what the adults are spending their time on. Chief is out. Oh, well, that'll solve things, won't it? Oh, they're so brave. They're so enlightened. That'll solve everything in San Francisco. Good work, everyone, as usual. And that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Happy Hour continues after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show. It has been, for all the obvious reasons, a very tough week for everyone following the news. And at the top of today's show, we welcome back our colleague Bill Malugin, who's been reporting from Uvalde, Texas, on the ground. Really a shocking press conference from authorities down in Texas earlier today. Bill sounded as stunned as I was at a number of the revelations. Here is part of my interview at the start of today's show with Bill Malugin. What are your big takeaways from what happened early this afternoon? Geez, where do we start, right? Um, I, I think you have to start with the fact that this all began in the first place because a door was propped open. We, we, we found out that the gunman was able to get into the school because a teacher propped a door open and left it open. Uh, my second biggest takeaway is Texas DPS is strongly criticizing the decision by local police to not breach that room. They said the incident commander, who was the Uvalde School District police chief, decided to treat it as a barricade situation instead of an active shooter situation. And Texas DPS, the director, Steve McGraw, said there's no excuse for that. And in hindsight, that was absolutely the wrong decision because the active shooter doctrine they teach is you go straight to that threat and you neutralize it. So what happened instead was there was a 45-minute span where um, those those officers, there were 19 officers waiting in the hallway while there were people making 911 calls from inside the classroom, teachers, children, asking for help. 
But the on-scene commander decided they were going to treat it as a barricade. They were not going to breach it. They were going to call a tactical team and wait for backup instead. And, Guy, I think that's going to be a very tough pill for parents to swallow, considering some of those children may have been alive inside of that classroom, maybe bleeding out. And in, in, in a situation like that, seconds and minutes matter if they could have gotten to the hospital sooner. Who knows? Um, but that, as you said, was, was quite a stunner of a press conference. Bottom line, we learned that from the moment police encountered him in the school to the moment he was shot and killed, it was an hour and 15 minutes. And a lot of that was just waiting. You had 19 officers at one point right outside that classroom. And to your point, Bill, they had no idea what was happening behind that door. They had no idea if the threat was neutralized. They had no idea if there were people still alive, children still alive who could be saved, but not for much longer. They had no idea if there were children hiding, praying that someone would come and rescue them before they got discovered and killed. This was just a judgment call based on I don't know what by this local police chief who seemingly handed down an order we're not going in. What I'm still trying to figure out is the timeline and the overlay of the 911 calls because it sounded very much to me, and we're still trying to piece this together, like there were calls for help, literal 911 calls for help happening during that time period of the quiet, of the waiting, of the stand down, of the let's wait. And was that information never relayed to the people making the decisions outside that door? Was it relayed and they just decided, oh, well, there are still a lot of questions here in my mind. And you hit the nail on the head because you look at the timeline specifically. Uh, They now say he entered the school at 11.33, and for about a two-minute span from 11.33 to 11.35, he had free reign in that classroom. He fired off hundreds of shots, just started massacring kids and the teachers in there. Well, well, hang on, Bill. Just sorry sorry to interrupt you. I just want to back up further than 11.33. 11.28, five minutes earlier, is when he shows up, and there's a first understanding, at least by some people, that there's a threat. There are people being shot at. He's shooting at the school. That is a crucial five-minute window between the killer arriving and the killer entering the school. Five minutes doesn't sound like a long time, but actually, in a lot of ways, it is. And one of the things that we also learned today is the resource officer, the armed resource officer, was not at the school. So I just want to stop there for a second because we were told, you were told, you told our audience based on your sources that there was a resource officer who was armed who exchanged fire with this killer before he entered the school and that the officer, in fact, was wounded during that exchange. We now know that that just did not happen at all. And I'm I'm still not understanding how it is possible for something that dramatic of a major detail to be put on the official record for two days and then just sort of retracted like, oh, I guess that got lost in translation. I don't understand that in the first place. And neither do we, because they were also incredibly detailed about that engagement. Remember, they text DPS told the media that not only was there a shootout between the resource officer and the gunman, but as a result of that, the resource officer was injured. And the gunman dropped a bag of ammo that he wasn't right. able to bring into the school. Then we find right. out there was no engagement, and the, the school resource officer apparently 
heard the 911 call and drove over to campus. Where he was before that, they wouldn't say. Uh, drove over to campus and inadvertently missed the shooter. Drove drew right by, drove right by him because he was kneeling next to a car. So he missed him. So yeah, you're 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 right. 1128 crashes the car. 1129 he's shooting at people at the funeral home. Um, 1131 the school resource officer drives by him without without knowing it. Two minutes later, 1133, he's in the school, and for two minutes, he's over 100 rounds in that classroom, massacring everybody. Then at 1135, after a few minutes in that classroom, the first group of local officers show up, seven of them. In the hallway, they approach the door, they get shot at, a couple of them are injured, and they fall back, and they train their guns on the door, and that is when the crucial decision was made. Instead of breaching, they fall back, they call for backup, and the, the tactical commander on the ground, who we were told today is the Uvalde School District Police Chief. That full discussion with Bill Malugin is available, along with the rest of the show, in its entirety, for free, on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. When we come back, we are going to finish the week on a non down note because i think we need to it is friday we will get to that when we come back party at my place will explain after this for the full interview and more go to guybensonshow.com home stretch as we approach the weekend together here on the guy benson show guybensonshow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge on demand seven days a week. Programming note, I'll be on Media Buzz with Howie Kurtz this long weekend, Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern time. And I saw Howie in the green room earlier this week. We were on special report together. And he said, oh, are you traveling for the long weekend? Are you going to be joining the show remotely? And I said, no, I'm going to be in D.C. I'll be in person. He said, oh, great. He said, my one concern, Howie, is I'm hosting a gigantic party the day before your show. I know 11 a.m. is late morning, but still, if you've had people at your house the previous day for probably, my guess is it'll go 10 to 12 hours because it's one of these start in the early afternoon, go till whenever things. I'm going to have to probably at least keep an eye on my intake over the course of that time period because then I have to get up not only go on television, but also go on television to talk about media coverage of one of the worst weeks of news in recent memory. So he said, oh, I'm sure you'll get it all done and have a good time, but not too good. I said, all right, thanks, Howie. So we are having this weekend barbecue that we've been talking about on and off here on the show now for, I think, over a month. The reason that I mentioned it as early as I did, first of all, the long drink which sponsors the happy hour, is also sponsoring the party. They've sent a lot of provisions to the house while supplies last for everyone who's showing up. And so we mentioned that, I think, in one context, and we're grateful for that. It is delicious. And then also I was trying to see if producer Christine would actually get herself to one of these summer barbecues because we host them uh, every year for the last couple of years, and she always makes a big show out of being offended if she's not going to be invited and talking all about best friends and the whole song and dance. And then when she actually gets invited, weirdly, we get a snub. We get a decline 
I think in this case, we didn't even get a physical RSVP on the website, unlike most people who at least had the decency to send us something online. Producer Christine was just sort of like, it was a roller coaster of emotions because at first she was unavailable and then actually maybe she could come after all that. No, no, the plans are in place. They're going somewhere else. Then, oh, wait, big upset. We're changing. We're coming. We're coming. And then, oh, just kidding. We're not coming. Christine, have you reached a final answer about tomorrow? Yes, I have. And unfortunately, I will not be able to make it. But well, I... you say unfortunately. What? But, you know, that's that's an editorial statement on your part, unfortunately. But the, the takeaway is you're not going to be able to make it. No, but I've tried two times now. I have the Evite open. I don't it, I don't see anywhere it says to decline. Uh, so there's a yes and a maybe and a no button. There, I don't see it. I really don't. I, I think it's green, yellow, and red, just like your traffic light as the chief happiness officer, Christine. You should be familiar <laughs> with how these colors work. Well, that's why I had to tell you because I couldn't figure out how to RSVP. So, no, sadly, we will – me and my family will not be able to make it. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. I just always want the invite. doesn't mean I'm necessarily going to go, but I want to be invited always. Yeah, but I don't really think that that's fair. Why not? Right? You, you just like the idea of being included with no intention of actually coming. Although you claim that – am I hearing this correctly? That you did your best to make it. You just couldn't follow through. We were very, very close. And unfortunately, my husband had a work trip this week, and it was just going to be way too much for him. He was going to mm. be out in Vegas and then coming back, and it just – it wasn't – But you're But you are traveling, aren't you? No. Oh, so the whole – all of your trips are canceled. Yeah. No, no, no. We're not going anywhere. We are. He wanted to stay put like he was traveling. He wants to stay put and just. Oh, so you would. So what you're telling me is you would have child care if you were to come down for the day. Hmm? Because you had said you didn't want to give Megan to Judgy Joyce for no, you to come down to the party. No, she was coming with us. What I'm saying, you could come. Just oh. cooking. Oh, <laughs> no. We only have one car. I can't leave them stranded for a long weekend. I don't know. I mean, you said that you did your best, but I, I'm not hearing your best here, I honestly. feel like it, I, I definitely did my best. And listen. Well, and by the way, it reminds me of a line from The Rock. Remember that movie, Nicolas Cage, in the 90s? like that classic action flick where Ch- Sean Connery says, losers always whine about their best. That was a terrible <laughs> impression. Losers always whine about their best. And then there's a follow-up line that I can't say on the radio. But I feel like this was maybe not your best, Christine. And we are going to be once again bereft of jello shots, which is what you promised to bring last time before not coming. Ooh, jello shots. Maybe I'll make them for me and Bobby. Well, that's weird, isn't it? Just to make what, them for to, the house. <laughs> just like a little uh, – well, maybe depends on how big the batch is. <laughs> that's true. But listen – Honestly, you have your favorite coming anyway. I'm not the favorite of the show. We all know who your favorite is. And YY is going to be there making little animal balloons and probably singing every American song he can think of. Well, here's the thing, and we do love Wyatt here at the show, but it doesn't really count because he is being paid to come as YY the Clown to entertain the guests and to make the balloon things, right? That's... That, so he's required to be here. He's under contract. You were just invited to come as a quote-unquote best friend 
And now I know you're not even doing anything else. You're like, oh, sorry, I'm busy. And you've now just admitted you're not busy. No, I You're I, just I, chilling at your house. No, look at your text message for when I declined. That's what I wrote. I would have to go back. The thing is, it's been a seesaw. Sometimes you're declining, <laughs> then you're coming, then you're not anymore. So I, we can always just hold out hope that maybe Christine will show up at the very last minute. I will say this. We were thinking about, because the weather forecast was looking really rough for tomorrow, and because of that, we were saying maybe we should punt this thing into Sunday because the Sunday forecast was looking better. I was worried because we've got a few dozen people I think more than that, who are coming and just trying to spread the word to every single person at the last minute. Actually, just kidding. We're moving it an entire day when people have RSVP'd and they've planned their weekends. We just decided, you know what? Rain or shine, we're going to stick with the date. And thankfully, in the last day or so, the weather forecast has improved dramatically. It was supposed to be like a rainy, potentially thunderstormy day tomorrow. And now I'm looking at the forecast and it's mostly sunny high of 80, which sounds almost perfect for something like this. Also very clear for like, I don't know, three and a half, four hour drive from New Jersey down to D.C., Christine. Well, I do have some news for you. I just want you to know, I actually, the reason I can't find the reply button is because I did reply already. I thought you had coerced Dan into playing the Fox News alert because you were going to reveal that you are coming to the party. And your alert is that you RSVP'd? <laughs> Wrong what usage. What a letdown. Wrong usage. That is an abuse. That is an abuse of our Fox News alert sounder. That sounder is sacred, and it means something. And if you had Fox News alerted into the fact that, surprise, you were coming to the party, literally that's what I thought you were doing there, I would have allowed it. But you have abused it, so and now. I don't know. You should see War Wyatt's face right now. He looks like he is on the war path. He's going to come like a drill sergeant, drop and give me 50 for what you just did to the Fox News alert sound effect. I was That's giving terrible. you news. I thought I could use it. I, mm, I, have mm, I, my mm, privileges mm. revoked now? Uh, privileges, Dan, just you are now ordered, not just by me, but by order of the – Czar of standards at the Guy Benson show, which is one of the many hats that Wyatt wears. Uh, Christine is not to have privileges on editorial decisions when it comes to the Fox News alert stinger. It's just. She blew it. Okay. All right. We got it. Sorry, Christine. Well, I hope that you have a very exciting weekend at home. Doing your jello shots by yourself. (laughs) and that you're not going to have fun. You couldn't come in and, I mean, you could have accompanied me maybe to Media Buzz. You could have hung out with Howie Kurtz. I mean, hey, the possibilities, endless. But I I see what's happening. You're making a choice. Everyone makes their choices. Do you think Howie would have done a jello shot with me? You know, I am going to guess not. However... If he did do a jello shot with you, I guarantee you it would be, Dan, a Fox News alert. And that's how you use the stinger. Well, we had to have a little bit of fun at the tail end of what has been 
needless to say, a brutal week for the country. We tried to cover everything respectfully and accurately, understanding there's a lot of passion and differences of opinion out there. And we really appreciate all of you listening, even when the topics are tough. Long weekend upcoming. Please enjoy your Memorial Day weekend. Please remember why Monday is Memorial Day. And then we'll be back here after a best of on that day with a brand new Guy Benson show on Tuesday. Have a great night. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.